Thank you very much, Brittany. And uh, thank you to the rest of the worship team as well for leading us this morning. And now a warm welcome again to each and every one of you. On this Resurrection Sunday, I invite you to turn with me in God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a very appropriate chapter, given the fact that the main theme is what? The resurrection. Uh, From the first verse to the last verse of this chapter, Paul is speaking of Christ's resurrection, our coming future resurrection, and all told, I, I think I'm well within the mark here, if I affirm to you this morning that when it comes to understanding the resurrection, this is probably the most important chapter in the whole Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So very appropriate that we are turning our attention to this text this day. Our study of it is going to take us well into the month of May, the middle of the month anyway. Uh, For now, for today, we are going to restrict our focus to the first 11 verses. And so I encourage you to follow along now in the reading of God's word again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Most of whom are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Right back to the start of the chapter, first verse, take careful note of how Paul begins. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you receive. I would remind you. In other words, I want to take time to remind you. Why does he want to remind them? The answer is obvious. Because they have what? Forgotten. Now, careful here. 
In what sense or in what way have they forgotten? They've forgotten the gospel. That much is clear. Because Paul states it emphatically right at the get-go. I want to remind you. I want to remind you of something you have forgotten. Namely, the gospel. But in what sense have they forgotten the gospel? You see, it's possible to forget in two different ways. All right, here we go. It is possible, firstly, to forget cognitively, isn't it? There are things we knew yesterday that we have forgotten today. There are lots of things, people, names, events, places, circumstances that we no longer remember. A couple of weeks ago, I was purchasing something. What it was isn't important. But there's the little machine. You've all done this. You pull out your card. You insert it. And then that question comes up, credit or debit. I hit debit. And then it has the nerve to ask for what? Password. Absolute blank. I've had this card over 10 years. I've been using the same password for over 10 years. I'm thinking of old phone numbers. I'm thinking of some of the codes to open the gates to some of your homes. All of these numbers are coming to me effortlessly. But I cannot for the life of me remember my own password. So what do you do? You cancel, restart the whole thing, and this time you pick credit. Because it asks for your zip code. No problem with that. You get it. You know what it means to forget notionally, cognitively. But it is possible to forget in a second way. Here we're not referring to the cognitive, but the affective. Here we're not speaking of things that we no longer remember cognitively, but of things that we still know. We know these things, but they no longer grip us. They no longer move us. They no longer influence us. They no longer stir us. They're no longer weighty. They no longer have any significance nor impact upon our lives. So some of you know, a couple of weeks ago, we were down on Galveston Island in the west part of the island, and we were staying in a, in a home, very nice. And uh, here's the home, and there's the shore, the beach way out there. And between the home and the beach, there is this tall grass, this protected area. I don't know, about a mile that way, about a mile this way. And all of these wooden walkways over the grass. And about every 30, 40 feet or so, there were these big signs, yellow signs. You could not miss them. A protected habitat. Rattlesnakes. With a big picture. Of a rattlesnake. Now, if you've been on Facebook, some of you know I'm a, I'm a rattlesnake slayer these days. <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. I knew not to venture into what? The tall grass. There's the sign. It's pretty clear. I understand it. And I applied it. And I acted accordingly. Uh, one evening, I picked up a magazine in the home. And I was flipping through. It is local news. And it was from a year ago. And wouldn't you know it, one of the locals. One of the locals, no less. What did he do? He ventured into the tall grass. And what happened? Yes, he encountered a rattlesnake. He survived. He was all right. But at that moment, when he entered into the grass, what had he done? 
he had forgotten. He had not forgotten the sign. He had not forgotten the warning. He had not forgotten the danger. He had not forgotten what was potentially lurking in the grass. It's not that he forgot cognitively. He forgot what? Effectively. Didn't care. Had no bearing on his life. It had no, it was no weightiness to it. It no longer affected him. It no longer impacted him. It no longer influenced his decision-making. And so when Paul says at the outset of this chapter, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. It's not that they've cognitively forgotten the gospel. Paul, gospel, what's the gospel? Yeah, explain the gospel again to us. It's not that they've forgotten it cognitively. What's the issue? They have forgotten it affectively. It no longer has the influence it ought to have Upon their lives. And so Paul seeks in the first 11 verses to remind them of the gospel. And my goal this morning is to link arms with the apostle Paul and to remind each of us of the gospel. For some here, sure enough, it might be for all I know, the first time you ever hear it. That's wonderful. Glad you're here. And I pray you will be paying attention. And the Spirit of God will be working in your heart and on your mind. For some here, perhaps you've been hearing a gospel, a supposed gospel for some time, but it's a skewed gospel. It is not a faithful representation of what the Word of God teaches. And I pray this morning that perhaps this introduction of the gospel will bring some clarity. And the Spirit of God will use it to set you on the right way. But for most here this morning, not all, but for most, I am hazarding the guess that we are familiar with the gospel. We know the facts concerning the gospel. I am going to remind us of those facts, remind us not because we have forgotten, but in a very Pauline sense to make sure that the gospel still impacts us. That it hasn't become ho-hum. That it hasn't become so familiar that we have lost all sense of its significance. And it's calling upon our lives. And so there are seven truths I want to touch on. Seven truths I want to remind us of this day before the Lord. Here is the first. The gospel is according to the scriptures. That's the first truth. Where do I get that? Look at verse three. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Into verse four, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. Here's the phrase used again. In accordance with the scriptures. Paul uses it twice in reference to Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Look, these events occurred in accordance with the scriptures. What does he mean by the scriptures? He means the Old Testament. Genesis to Malachi. There it is. You can open it. You can read it. And his point is what? That the gospel was promised 
prophesied in the scriptures. The great theme of the Old Testament, all those books and all those obscure historical events and happenings and all of those interesting people, it all has to do with the gospel. It is all there laying the foundation and the groundwork for the gospel and the coming of the Lord Jesus and what Christ accomplished by means of his crucifixion and resurrection should take no one by surprise because for thousands of years, God himself in the scriptures was promising, this is what's going to happen. And when the fullness of time arrived, Christ came into this world. And so we see that the gospel is according to, to the scriptures, or we can state it in slightly different terms. The gospel is clearly God's plan. It has always been his plan. Well, we need to be reminded of this. We need to be reminded of this given the thousands of distractions that pour into our lives. We need to be reminded of this because we so easily lose perspective nowadays, don't we? We need to be reminded of this to ensure that our eyes are fixed on the big picture. Oh, my friend, what is life without the gospel? You know what it is? It's vanity. Apart from the gospel... I mean, I don't want to depress you this morning, but I do want to declare the truth and make sure we're clear on this. Apart from the gospel, life is ultimately meaningless, friend. Absolutely meaningless. Absolutely insignificant. Here today, gone tomorrow, a lot of screaming and fuss in between, and then forgotten a couple of years later. What is your life, James asked? It's a mist. It's a vapor. It's a cloud. Here one moment completely evaporated, disappeared the next. There's a show, it's on PBS, Finding Your Roots. And I watch it once in a while. It's a fascinating little show. People will come in and say, um, my grandmother was so-and-so, birth date, I think it was February, whenever. And that's all they know. I want to discover my roots. And then off they go, finding your roots. And people will start doing DNA testing into the archives, birth records, marriage records, death records. And they'll put together this elaborate family tree then, tracing back this individual's relatives. All these people, the individual has absolutely no knowledge of, never heard of. And yet there they all are, all these human beings, completely forgotten. How long do you think you'll be remembered after you're gone? Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll be the token photograph on the fireplace mantle somewhere, right? (laughs) And the great-grandkids will look at that photo and say, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. What's his name again? Boy, I'm glad I didn't inherit that nose. (laughs) And that's all they'll be saying about you, folks. We think we're at the center of the universe. It all revolves around us. It's all of such significance and we're so weighty and how would this world ever cope without us? Oh, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. One old preacher put it as follows. Man's life is but the shadow of smoke. That's great. Man's life is but the shadow of smoke. 
our lives, come on, in the final analysis, apart from the gospel, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, apart from the meaning, the significance, the purpose that the gospel brings to life, this, this whole thing's a joke, friends. It really is. What purpose? What function? In, on the grand scheme of things, the great scale of things of reality, what possible purpose does this life have outside of the gospel? And the eternal life that is extended to us by means of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, this is the first truth and we better get it and we better get it good. The gospel is according to the scriptures. Meaning the gospel is God's eternal plan. And that plan and that plan alone infuses meaning and purpose into life. Here's the second truth. The gospel is rooted in Christ's death and resurrection. You know it. We read it already. Let's read it again. Verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance. Of primary importance. Two truths. The first is this. Number one. That Christ died for our sins. In accordance with the scriptures. Number two. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. In accordance with the scriptures of first, of fundamental importance. These two events, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus and the, cru- and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Why are these so important? Or using that word again, why are these so fundamental? The Apostle Paul tells us elsewhere, it is because Christ was delivered up for our trespasses, our sins. And he was raised for our justification. Here we get to the crux of the matter. Here we arrive at the heart of the gospel. That which again in Paul's language is of first importance. Christ died for us. I'm going to use the word. If you don't know it, learn it because it is a beautiful word. That means that Christ's death was vicarious. That great vicarious. What does that mean? It means it was substitutionary. It means he stood in our place. And so think in terms of God's judgment, all that transpired at Calvary's cross. That's where I should have stood. That's where you should have stood. That judgment is what we rightfully earned, merited by our lives, by our sins, by our trespasses. But the Lord Jesus suffers vicariously. The Lord Jesus stands in our place. And the Lord Jesus bears our sins in his body on the tree. And the Lord Jesus becomes a curse for us. He dies. Three days later, he arises and his resurrection testifies to what? God's acceptance of his sacrifice. God's acceptance of all that the Lord Jesus accomplished upon Calvary's cross is confirmed when he rises triumphantly from the dead. Oh, we need to be reminded of this. This is the heavens of heaven. This is, this is the heaven of heavens. Peter writes, Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Does it stir you? Some of us have been hearing that 
as long as we can remember. Does it move us? One of the old hymn writers penned the following. Am I a stone and not a sheep? Am I a stone and not a sheep? That I can stand, O Christ, beneath thy cross. To number drop by drop thy blood's slow loss. And yet not weep. Am I a stone? Rock hard. Or does the gospel of which Paul reminds us. Does it stir in every fiber of our being, in our core, in the pit of our belly, so to speak, whereby we recall what we were at one time apart from Christ. And we see with fresh eyes yet again a crucified Savior. And we celebrate yet again an empty tomb. And we say hallelujah. As we reflect on what we were, what we now are, and we understand there is but one who has made this radical change and transformation. It is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Oh, the gospel is rooted in Christ's death and resurrection. Here's the third truth. The gospel is a historical reality. Verse 5. We've got his crucifixion. We've got his resurrection. After the resurrection, Paul makes this point. What happens? Fifth verse, he appeared. He appeared. He showed himself to Cephas. That's Peter, right? We're all familiar with Peter. That's his other name, Cephas. Then to the 12, the band of disciples. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. And as Paul, when Paul is writing years after the fact, what does he say? Most of whom are still alive. He probably met some of them. Probably knew some of them. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. That's the brother of the Lord Jesus, the half brother. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, finish it all off. As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Why does Paul say this? Paul says this because he's making the point. Look, look, folks, we're not dealing with a legend here. We're not dealing with myth. We haven't entered the realm of mythos. This isn't human invention. 500 people saw him at the same time. Most of them are still alive. How do you explain that? How do you explain that, especially when it comes to people who had no, no mental framework to even begin to understand the resurrection? How do they make this up? The disciples themselves, and look at the lives they're living. Look at those who've already been killed. Uh, you think they made this up and then died for it? Look at me, the Apostle Paul. I've been beaten so many times, I can't even remember how many times. Spent countless nights in prison, shipwrecked, left for dead on a number of occasions. And you think I'm making this up? What kind of sadistic person would do that? Suffer for something they knew to be a lie. Something they knew to be false. No, come on, my friend. The, the, the testimony is overwhelming. The evidence is indisputable. Christ died, he was buried, he rose again, and he appeared. We are dealing with a historical fact. Oh, we need to be reminded of this. Without belaboring it, let me just suggest to you two reasons we need to be reminded of this. Number one, it's so important. 
Because the gospel, my friend, is not a perspective. It is not a philosophy. It is not an ideology. The gospel is news. You know what the news is? Half of it fake these days. But at least we still understand what the news is. The idea is to report on what has happened. That is what the gospel is. The gospel is simply news. It is good news. It is simply announcing something that has happened. Christ was crucified. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. This isn't a perspective, a philosophy, or an ideology. This is good news about what Christ has accomplished by his crucifixion and resurrection. And secondly, maybe closer to the heart for some of us here this morning. We need to be reminded of the fact that the gospel is a historical reality, meaning that it isn't true. Many need to hear this today. It isn't true because of what it does for you. What it does for you is completely irrelevant to whether or not it actually happened. It isn't true because of how it helps you cope. Or how it makes you feel. It is true because it is an historical fact. And therefore we confess with our mouths. Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts. God raised him from the dead. The faith is not based on some sort of wishy-washy subjective experience. How does this make me feel? I'll state this pastorally. And I pray I'll state it lovingly. I don't care how it makes you feel. We're not dealing with the realm of feelings. We are dealing with historical fact. The Lord Jesus died for sinners. The Lord Jesus conquered death and rose again. The Lord Jesus appeared to hundreds of people. This is the message we proclaim. A historical reality. The fourth truth is this. The gospel is the revelation of God's sovereign grace. And so in verse eight, Paul introduces himself into the narrative, right? His argument, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he gives us now a little biographical, autobiographical sketch. And he makes two extremely important points. In the ninth verse, what does he say? I am the least of the apostles, not I was the least of the apostles. Even now, this is how I see myself. Even now, this is my self-assessment. I am the least of the apostles. When it comes right down to it, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Paul knows he's a wretch, a miserable wretch. Paul knows he's a sinner. And, you know, it's interesting, it's fascinating here that uh, he would point to his persecution of the church. He was like a ravenous wolf chasing after all who profess the name of Christ. But, you know, you go to Romans 7, and it's interesting there in Romans 7 where he talks again about his conversion experience and what finally brought him to that point when the penny dropped. And what was it the Spirit of God used to, to convict him of his sin and to bring him to the Lord Jesus? What was it? It was actually just the 10th commandment. Which is what? Shall not covet. That's all it was. The Apostle Paul understood that even his persecution of the church, all that he did externally, 
It could all be traced back his entire life, the bad he had done and even the so-called good he had done. He knew it all flowed from a covetousness heart. And he knew he was a lover of self. But what does he say as he moves into verse 10? Great word, but I know who I was, unworthy, but. And then he uses the word grace three times in the 10th verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them as an apostle, though it was not I. But even that's the grace of God that is with me. Oh, the gospel is the revelation of God's sovereign grace. We need to be reminded of that. It's found throughout scripture, this acute awareness of unworthiness when it comes to our approach to God. Abraham stated the following, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. I who am but dust and ashes. Do we see ourselves like that? We are nothing more than dust. And ashes. Jacob, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love that you have shown to your servant. We're not worthy of the sun rising each morning and setting each evening. We're not worthy of the rain that falls. We're not worthy of the very food on our table. We are not worthy of any gift we receive from our sovereign creator. John the Baptist could declare, Among you stands one you do not know. He's referring to the Lord Jesus. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal. I'm not worthy to untie. His sandal. His sandal. You know what that is? On his foot. Absolutely inconsequential, meaningless. This is John's self-assessment. I'm not even worthy to touch that. I'm not even unworthy to untie that. Or the cry of Peter on one occasion, depart from me. For I am a sinful man. The cry of the centurion, Lord, I am not worthy to have come under your, have you come under my roof. The cry of the prodigal son. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I am unworthy. I have just shared with you why the gospel is so offensive. That's what makes the gospel so offensive. The starting point to the gospel, the starting point for the good news is what? It's the really bad news. And the really bad news is what? That insofar as our relationship with God goes as unbelievers, we don't have a relationship. Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 8, and I know this goes against the flow. This goes against the tide. This goes against just about everything we hear in our day. Paul makes it clear there in Romans chapter 8 that those who are in the flesh, unbelievers, cannot please God. It's an impossibility. 
You know, I'll, I'll just speak about me. You can apply it to yourself. It means that before the Lord saved me, before I was converted, before I believed in the Lord Jesus, I never did one good thing in my life as far as God is concerned. Anybody here find that offensive? There's no hope for salvation until we come to grips terms with this, folks. There's no going forward. This is why the gospel gets so messed up by so many. This is why the gospel is so skewed in our day because all about how it'll make you feel, how it'll help you, how it'll make your life better, how God needs you, all this stuff. I could use a different word, but I'll stick with stuff. And the gospel is what? It is actually what? It is a proclamation of Christ's crucifixion, resurrection. His crucifixion, why? For our sins. And the starting point of the gospel is to join with the Apostle Paul in recognizing and understanding our unworthiness. It's if only we believed it, right? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. I don't know how people sing that song with a straight face. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, right? That saved day. Wretch, a wretch like me. Maybe you're offended by that. I'd ask you just to do something very simple later today. I, I beg you to do something very simple later today. Take a pen and paper and just think through the last week and uh, track, write down all of your thoughts, what you've thought about in your idle time and all of your words what you have spoken, about whom you have spoken, and the tone in which you spoke those words. Just do that, just for a week. Well, my friend, we are wretches. We need to go no further than the imaginations of our minds and the words that come out of this mouth. It is out of the, the mouth we speak what? What is in the heart. It is the revelation of who we are. Oh, but that word, but... Verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. Yes, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. Oh, the gospel is the revelation of God's saving grace. I am saved for one reason. And that reason is God's grace alone. Here's the fifth truth quickly. The gospel is a message to be received. Go back with me to verse one. A message to be received. Now I would remind you brothers of the gospel. Now notice what he says here. I preached to you, which you received. Now skip down to verse 11. Whether then it was I or they so we preach, and so you believed. And so verse 1, he makes this point, I preached the gospel, we preached the gospel. And he makes the point again in the 11th verse. He makes the point in verse 1, that is this gospel that you received or believed, and he repeats it again in the 11th verse, so we preach and so you believed. And so these are the bookends again. There's, again, this is an inclusion. This is a literary device. Paul is drawing our attention to the fact that this is the main theme in the intervening verses, that this 
is what it all comes down to. This is what I'm trying to remind you of principally. That is, I came and I, I publicly declared something to you. You understand the content of that message. Christ was died upon Calvary's cross. Christ was buried. Christ rose again. Christ appeared. This is what I proclaimed. And I proclaimed the forgiveness of sins to all who would what? Receive this message. Believe in this one of whom I speak. No, the gospel is not the proclamation of what we need to do to be saved. The gospel is the proclamation of what Christ has done so that we might be saved. It's a huge difference, friends. Just a few little words altered, changed in those two sentences, but they have a world of difference. And we need to hear this today. This past week, I don't know where I read it, but the... uh, the Scala Santa, the Holy Stairs, there in the Vatican, in, uh, in Italy, in Rome, opened up. I mean, they've always been there. They're the marble stairs that allegedly were uh, there and uh, where Pontius Pilate would sit and pass judgment. And apparently the Lord Jesus, allegedly, these were the stairs, the marble stairs that he ascended uh, as he stood trial before Pilate and it was Constantine's mother, Helena, apparently had them transported to Rome. And for hundreds of years, they've sort of been hidden behind a wooden, wooden barrier, whatever, covering. And they've opened them up for viewing these, these marble steps. And some, I'd like to see that. I have no problem seeing that. I have no problem celebrating the history behind it. But the number of people um, scaling those steps on their knees, hoping for what? What are they trying to accomplish? Get God's attention. Earn God's favor. Martin Luther, you've heard of him, most of us. He did the same thing before the Lord saved him. He went off to Rome on a pilgrimage, scaled the stairs, Scala Santa, uttered a paternoster on each step because they told him. Everybody knew if you did that, it uh, would release one soul from purgatory, Right? And that may not be precisely what the Roman Catholic Church teaches today. And even my point isn't even to go down that road or touch it. It is to simply use it as an example of what? That there abides in each and every one of us a spirit of legalism. That abides and dwells in each and every one of them as this attitude. Then when it comes down to the final analysis, the final equation as to why I am saved. is because ultimately there is something in me or something I do like the young man who approached the Lord Jesus centuries ago, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? That's the natural man. That's each of us by nature. What good deed must I do to have eternal life? The only problem with that is this. We don't do any good deeds in the sight of God. There is no no one who does good. There is absolutely nothing we do that is of merit in the sight of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please him. This is where countless people make shipwreck of their souls. They will not let go of this. They will not let go of this. Even faith, they will turn into a work. I'm saved because I believe. No, I'm not. 
I'm saved because the Lord Jesus Christ died upon Calvary's cross, rose again, and I have simply received him. Faith is merely the instrument by which we receive the Lord Jesus. It is simply the instrument by which we receive this good news. It is merely the means by which we receive the gospel. It is not a work we perform on the basis of which, well, God now saves me because I did this. I decided for him on such and such a date. I saw the light. It happened many years ago. And it's because of this decision I made or what I have done, the fact that I turned to him, that's why I'm saved. No, that's simply the means, the instrument by which we receive the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. A work that he and he alone accomplished at Calvary's cross. Oh, the gospel is not a work to be performed. It is a message to be received. And my friend, I pray you have received the message. Here it is as simply as I can put it. Christ gave himself for our sins. Do you receive it or do you not? Do you believe it or do you not? There is no merit in extending the hand and receiving it. There is nothing meritorious about believing, turning to the Lord Jesus. We simply hear the message declared, what is preached, and we believe we receive. The sixth truth is this. The gospel is the means by which we are, back in verse 2, being saved. He does not say that we are saved by the gospel. Verse 2, and by which you are being saved. We would expect him to say by which you are saved. And here's what we fail to misunderstand at times. Yes, the gospel, salvation is past. I believe in the Lord Jesus. Therefore, in the language of Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who trust in Christ, believe in the Lord Jesus. Salvation is past in that sense. Salvation is future in another sense. I'm awaiting my salvation. What is that? I'm awaiting my redemption. I'm awaiting the resurrection of my body. That's when salvation will be completed once and for all. And in the meantime, guess what? I'm being saved. You see, I have been saved from the penalty of sin. That's past. I will be saved from the presence of sin. That's future. And right now I'm being saved from the power of sin. He's rescued me from this present age. Is that true of you, friend? He's rescued me from this present age. And now by the power of his spirit, I am putting away, seeking to put away the pride, greed, anger, pessimism, darkness, selfishness, and foolishness that mark this present age. Oh, we need to be reminded of this. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the seventh truth builds on the sixth. Here it is. The gospel is the center of our lives. Hear verses 1 and 2 again in their entirety. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, 
in which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. As a young man, Allison and I were discussing him just this past week. You don't know him decades ago, but he, uh, made it public some years ago that he didn't count, consider himself to be a Christian anymore. And he'll often get on social media and he'll use this language. Um, you know, in 2006, I lost my faith. No, he didn't. He never had faith. You cannot lose what you never had. The problem is this. For most of us, we think faith is just a single moment of time. It's punctiliar. This is how the gospel has been presented to most people. Faith is simply something you do in a moment of time. Faith is simply when you uttered that prayer when you were six years old. Faith is simply that moment that you walked down the aisle or you filled in that card or you prayed the sinner's prayer. That, that, that's the time you believed. And that's it. Faith is confined to that moment of time. Since then... Maybe you've lived a life completely inconsistent with that so-called profession of faith. Guess what, my friend? It was not faith. Because faith is not a single punctiliar act. Faith is an attitude of life. It has a starting point. We believed. But guess what? It never stops. We keep believing. We hold fast to the gospel. And we don't let go of the gospel. And so imagine yourself, I don't know, on that bus, on that subway, and it's crowded. There are no seats. And you get on it, and the bus is lurching here and there over the, the, the potholes in the road, around the bends and the curves and over the hills and stopping and going. And you're holding on for what? That little thing hanging from the ceiling. For dear life, as you sway with this bus as it makes its route through the city. That's the imagery here. Yes, we believed. It's, there was a starting point when we believed. And ever since, we continue to what? Hold on for dear life. If we don't hold on, guess what we have proven to be true? Not that we've lost the faith, but that we actually never had it. There may be just one person here right now who needs to hear that. There may be a couple of people who need to hear that for all I know. You think you're saved, right? And the reason you think you're saved is because your mama keeps telling you're saved. Because you said the prayer when you're six years old. But since then, you've lived pretty much however you've pleased. You don't walk with the Lord. There's no interest in spiritual things. You're not serious about eternal realities. The Bible is a closed book to you, but in the back of your head there, you've been thinking all morning, preach it, brother. Yeah, it's the gospel. I'm saved. No, you're not saved. You're not saved. It's a false gospel. We believe and we never stop believing. We receive the Lord Jesus. We receive the message. And we hold on for dear life to the end. Oh, we need to be reminded of this. Do we have Hold of the gospel. Oh, it is God's eternal plan according to the scriptures. It is rooted in Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. 
It is a historical, unshakable, unchallengeable reality. It is the revelation of sovereign, amazing grace. It is the message to be received. And it is the means by which we are being saved. Oh, what an anchor in the eye of a storm. What a refuge in the face of the enemy. And what a light in the midst of darkness. So young and old, male and female, do you believe the gospel? There it is in all its simplicity. I would remind you of these things. Have you truly received and welcomed the Lord Jesus? Are you holding on to the Lord Jesus as the only hope of salvation? And do you know the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit that accompanies that salvation? Uh, if not, as a messenger of the Lord, my task today is very simple. It is to charge you. It is to command you. On behalf of God himself, you are to look to the Son. You are to look to Calvary's cross. You are to believe in a risen Savior. And you are to come with your self-righteousness shredded in pieces. And you're to seize hold of the Lord Jesus as the only worthy Savior and only hope of eternal life. Oh, our Father, we pray that Christ might be exalted in and through us this day. And we pray that the gospel might be a song implanted deep within our hearts that shapes our lives for your glory and for the furtherance of your kingdom. Come, we pray, perform your good and perfect work among us, especially in the hearts of those who as of yet do not know Christ. We ask it of you in his most worthy name. Amen.